0: It's a blessing to be back in Anderson Auditorium worshiping here, soaking up the robust singing, thoughtful liturgy, and Montreat's always inspired partnership with the arts is a joy, an unambiguous joy. Thank you, Richard, my dear friend, for the invitation to return. A happy Pride Sunday to all of you. May today's celebrations strengthen our resolve to support marriage equality laws and to resist the erosion of hard-won LGBTQ rights. Let us pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My college roommate, Mark, was and is the somewhat irreverent gay son of a Lutheran pastor. Whenever things would get tense in the dormitory, Mark had the savant-like ability to summon a Sunday school song to fit the occasion. If someone was offering an excuse not to join us for a trip to the movies, Mark would break into, I cannot come to the banquet. I cannot come to the banquet. Don't bother me now. I have married a wife. I have bought me a cow. I have fields and commitments that cost a pretty sum. Pray hold me excused. I cannot come. If we were slogging through an all-night study session, Mark would belt out. Sooner or later, you're going to start joining me here. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning. Give me oil in my lamp. I pray, I pray. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning, burning, burning. Keep me burning till the break of day. Someone felt left out, had not been invited to a campus party. Mark would offer up, complete with hand motions, Father Abraham had many kin. Many kin had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, turn around, sit down. (laughs) If someone felt overwhelmed by life's challenges, Mark would turn to a song based on today's scripture. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. <laughs> hey, hey, you want to keep going? It's good. According to Christianity Today magazine, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, is the second most popular Sunday school song of all time, bested only by Jesus Loves Me. It's easy to see why. Zacchaeus, like the children who typically sing the song, is small, he's brave, he's a problem solver he 's admirable Zacchaeus is a biblical hobbit. <laughs> unless you ask the man 's neighbors, <laughs> the people of Jericho did not look at Zacchaeus and see frodo baggins they They saw a traitor and a cheat. Zacchaeus was a tax assessor. Zacchaeus collected some would say, extorted money from a population who lived under the thumb of a foreign government. Zacchaeus was responsible for for seeing that people paid for the privilege of being occupied by Rome. For this, he was handsomely rewarded. And for this, he is doubly despised. Zacchaeus was despised by the people of Jericho, these grumblers over here, and he's actually despised by people today. While while researching this text, I came across a blog that describes Zacchaeus in withering terms as a one-percenter, a despicable man who stole from the poor to line his own pockets in this week's Christian Century magazine, one contributor claims that if Zacchaeus were alive today, he would be a white supremacist. Is that true? Is this wee little man a really, really bad guy? What does the good book say? Well, at first glance, the evidence doesn't look promising. Luke doesn't describe Zacchaeus as a run of the mill Roman stooge. He describes Zacchaeus as the chief tax collector. He's the big cheese, a rich guy, almost certainly a Roman tool. You want to blame someone for the pain and misery in Jericho? Blame Zacchaeus. And the people do. You know how the story goes. One excited afternoon, Zacchaeus is weaving through a crowd. He's after the same thing as everyone else. He's trying to get a peek at this visiting healer, this powerful speaker, this life changer, this Jesus. All Zacchaeus can see, though, are, are the backs of people's heads. So he, he climbs a sycamore tree. And, and this is where the real drama plays out walking down the avenue, Jesus stops. He, he looks up. He, he spots Zacchaeus. It's, it's a hold your breath moment. When, when Jesus looks at this fellow clinging to a branch, what does he see? Does he see a bad man? Or does he see a vulture perched in the sycamore? Or something altogether different? Those who vote Vulture have certainly got the crowds on their side. In today's passage the locals grumble when they spot Jesus heading to Zacchaeus' house. They're incensed. Come on rabbi, can't you see what we see? This guy's ethical standards are as diminished as his stature. Zacchaeus is a small man with a with a small heart. Is that true? Is Zacchaeus just the worst? Curiously, biblical scholars are conflicted on this question. You you can actually get into quite an argument over whether wealthy Zacchaeus, the head tax collector in Jericho, was a bad guy. And the crux of this argument lies in how people translate verse 8 in today's text. Now hang with me for a second, I promise... Not to spend too much time in Bible geek land, but this is important. Sometimes the biggest conflicts begin with translation. This is true of the US Constitution, it's also true of the Bible. Basically, people render verse 8 into English in two different ways. Present tense or future tense? If if you go with the present tense, as our readers did this morning, Zacchaeus says to Jesus, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, I restore it fourfold. If you go with the future tense, Jesus says, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Do you see the difference? If we use the future tense, Zacchaeus is suddenly changing directions. He's he's making a pledge. From this point on, I will give half of my goods to the poor. If you read it this way, Zacchaeus is a convert. His heart has been altered by the fact that Jesus came to visit his home. Zacchaeus is a vulture, but he's a vulture who promises to abandon his predatory ways going forward. On the other hand, if we use the present tense, Zacchaeus tells Jesus that he already gives half of his goods to the poor. He already goes far beyond what the law requires in caring for his neighbors and extending compassion to the impoverished in doing good. If we translate verse 8 in the present tense, Zacchaeus doesn't need a grand conversion. He's no vulture. He's a righteous dude. So which is it? Which translation is correct? Luke scholar, Joseph Fitzmaier, puts it this way. You can debate all you want, but the fact is, in the original language, in Greek, verse 8 is in the present tense. So why? Why does the blogger I quoted, why does the NRSV translation of the Bible, why do so many interpreters want to stick with the future tense? Why are today's translators behaving like the crowds in Jericho? Why can they not accept that wealthy Zacchaeus is a good guy? The answer, I suspect, has to do with disgust. Disgust, by the way, disgust explains everything. <laughs> At least that's what Molly Young claims in a fascinating feature article that appeared a few months back in the New York Times Magazine. Disgust explains everything. According to psychologists, humans have six basic emotions. Anger, surprise, fear, joy, sadness, and disgust. Out of this constellation of feels, disgust is the least studied and quite possibly the most misunderstood emotion. At the same time, experiencing disgust is extremely common. We experience disgust every day. Disgust occurs when we clean the hair and other slimy stuff from our shower drain. Disgust occurs when our face scrunches on catching a scent of a septic tank that needs pumping. Disgust occurs when yuck escapes our li- lips on finding an old container of food in the, in the back of the fridge that's growing a layer of fuzz on it. Disgust is universal. The things that trigger disgust, not so much. We don't all find the same things revolting. The things that gross us out vary. And this makes disgust a rich subject for comedians. Almost every episode of Seinfeld revolves around someone or something that just might possibly be disgusting. Take Jerry's monologue from a 1995 episode. Now, I was thinking the other day about hair. (laughs) And the weird thing is, is that people will touch other people's hair. You will actually kiss another human being right on the head. But if one of those hairs should somehow escape from that skull and go off on its own, it is now the vilest, most disgusting thing that you can encounter. The same hair. People freak out. There was a hair in my egg salad. Disgust is funny. It's awkward. It's strange. It's also played a historically important role in protecting humans from potentially dangerous stuff. Jonathan Haidt, author, psychologist, and professor of ethical leadership at New York University, has spent a good bit of his career studying disgust, together with his mentor, Paul Rosen. Haidt argues that disgust is something that millennia of evolution has hardwired into humans, we are, all of us, shaped for disgust. Like, like a watchdog, disgust stands alert in our heads, ready to, to raise its hackles and, and bark at potential harm. Why do we recoil from moldy food? Why do mealy worms in a sack of flour make people queasy, Why do we turn away from a war photo showing a body decaying in a field? We recoil, says Height, because deep in our brain, a well-honed instinct is waving a flag. Look out! You are face-to-face with a potential contaminant with the possibility of illness and disease. Now here's the tricky thing. Our minds recoil from all sorts of things. We don't draw the line at biological contaminants. So over time, a long, long time, disgust has experienced mission creep. It's no longer satisfied safeguarding us from rotten meat and and raw sewage. It wants to protect our souls, too. In this, the culture, and I should of course say cultures, plural, around us are, are constantly drawing lines, seeking to define what is and what is not disgusting. Think of it like this. Our sense of disgust is, is not confined to whether food is moldy or decaying. It extends to what actually counts as food. Certain cultures and religions forbid the consumption of meat that comes from pigs or cows or shellfish, like Richard ate the other night, or dogs. Some believe that eating meat of any sort is taboo. All of this is to say that down through the millennia, humanity's sense of what is disgusting has become somewhat plastic. It's stretched beyond its original role, holding us back from the biologically risky, to take part in policing the boundaries around all sorts of moral issues. You know this. Disgust is woven into debates about who a society thinks people ought to befriend, to date, or to walk alongside in public, holding hands. Disgust is frequently evoked throughout the world to set norms for all sorts of sexual behavior. Disgust has also been used to put up barriers between ethnicities, to criticize certain body types, to set cultural standards for dress, and even to debate the Appropriate length of men and women's hair. Disgust plays a role in our political discourse, too. We've talked a lot in this country in recent years about politics that seek to motivate voters by playing on people's fears. But I've begun to wonder if we've entered a new phase. It, it feels like political attacks that make us afraid, are no longer enough. The strongest political rhetoric turns our stomach. It sickens us. In recent hearings, those senators who accused Justice Kentonji Brown Jackson of being soft on child pornography knew what they were doing They wanted to portray her as disgusting. Why do politicians on the right and the left go beyond political and legal differences to throw stink on their opponents? The obvious answer is the right answer it works. Disgust makes us recoil. It also activates us. In a strange way, humans like to share their sense of being disgusted with each other. This cheese smells disgusting. Here, take a whiff. (laughs) All this is to say the media and we who consume the media's stomach-churning fare shoulder part of the blame We are drawn to the scent of something nasty. Sure, we disagree with this person politically, but but now we've come to see that things are far worse than we imagined. This person is vile. They're disgusting. Here, take a whiff. Why does QAnon deceitfully suggest that American politicians have been running a child prostitution ring out of a pizza joint in Washington, D.C.? Why does Vladimir Putin falsely claim that Ukraine is being run by Nazis comparing them to one of the most amoral regimes in history? Now, none of this, of course, is new. According to the good book, citizens of the ancient world believed themselves to be experts on the subject of disgust. Luke makes it clear that the people of Jesus' time had a long list of those deemed physically, morally, spiritually offensive. Shepherds. We love shepherds because of Christmas, but shepherds were generally thought to be disgusting. Lepers. Disgusting. Adulterers. Disgusting. Beggars. Disgusting. Immigrants. Disgusting. People of other faiths. Disgusting. The demon-possessed. Disgusting. The lame. Disgusting. In his travels, Jesus encounters all sorts of souls who had been labeled by their neighbors disgusting. Instead of recoiling, though... Christ flips convention on its head. Everywhere he goes, Jesus sidles up to folk on society's margins. He he eats with sinners. He he shares pita bread with deplorables. He, He touches the sweaty brows of the untouchable. Christ embraces the disgusting. Doesn't this bother you? People keep asking the disciples. Your teacher sits at picnic tables with traitors, criminals, and other folk who are obviously unclean. He washes his hands alongside them. He pours cups of wine for them. It makes me sick. The locals are scandalized when when Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house for supper. They grumble. They despise Zacchaeus because of his wealth. They hate him because of his politics. They mock him because of his size. And isn't this always the case? The crowds assume that God must share their opinion. God must hate Zacchaeus too. Not so, says Jesus. When I look on Zacchaeus, I see a righteous man. When I gaze up in that sycamore, I see someone who is more than fair in his business dealings, someone who cares deeply about the poor. When I look on Zacchaeus, I see a respectable son of Abraham. I see someone who lives up to his name. His name, Zacchaeus, by the way, it means pure, innocent. The Japanese artist who painted this Amazing work of art. Uh, Soichi Watanabe captures, I think, this text in a brilliant manner. When the angular crowd, you see them there with their triangle heads, looks at Zacchaeus, they see wealth, power, corruption. But this is not what Jesus sees. He looks beyond the trappings of worldly wealth to see, surprise, surprise, a faithful heart. Well, the old Zacchaeus turns out to be a good guy? Wait, doesn't Jesus say at the end of this passage, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost? And that, of course, begs the question, well, 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 who's lost in this story? I submit to you that Zacchaeus isn't especially lost, maybe a little lost, He's certainly lonely, he's got to be a lonely fellow, he's despised, maligned by his neighbors, but is he lost? In this story, to me, it's the crowds who look lost. And if we're honest, we all know this kind of lost. In recent years, we've all been there when the rhetoric of division hooks into our hearts when we're encouraged to see our neighbors as threats to our dignity and our livelihood when when politicians and pundits single out subsets of our society telling us that they they the evil they are the authors of all of our problems we lose our way when we're lost we're not at our best When we're lost, we we follow vague and impossible promises. When we're lost, we resist facing our most difficult challenges. When we're lost, we find it very hard to talk about the sacrifices, God forbid, the necessary sacrifices that we must make to get back on track. The crowd in Jericho was lost like this. They'd figured out who was responsible for the problems in their city. They knew who the sinners were, and they were ready to cancel Zacchaeus. They expected the visiting prophet to join in. Clearly, they hadn't been paying attention to our Lord. Jesus doesn't go in for the politics of disgust. He sups with the poorest of the poor, Binds up the wounds of those we deem untouchable. And then he turns around and declares that he's going to go camp out in the home of a wealthy guy that no one else likes. What is he doing? I think he's elbowing us in the side. Do you recognize anybody in the pinched, angry faces in Jericho? Have you seen that look before? Maybe on TV. Maybe in the mirror? Are you certain that there's no way that the panhandler who co- accosted you in Asheville this past week could possibly be a good person? Or maybe you feel that there's no way that Richie Rich Zacchaeus could be a good guy? I came to seek and save the lost, says Jesus. I came to save you, all of you, from division from making outcasts of each other, from toxic political rhetoric that shackles the heart. I came to get you to stop shouting, to sit down at a table together, to to break bread, to share a story, and to find brothers and sisters in places where you never imagined God's children might dwell. After Christ left, the tax collector's house. What do you think he's saying? Maybe in the dark, in the quiet of his bedroom, Zacchaeus hummed, Jesus loves me. This I know. Although personally, I like to picture Zacchaeus running out into the street, grabbing his next door neighbor, dancing and belting out a chorus of, And this is the slide, Heather. Father Abraham had many kin. Many kin had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, turn around, sit down.